Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. We have the All-Star Game, we have the Tall Ships, and we have news to talk about on the latest edition of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and for this episode, I'm joined by columnist Mark Namick, politics editor Jane Cahoon, data guru Rich Exner, and Cuyahoga County reporter Courtney Astafi. It's Mark Namick's final appearance on this podcast. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hey, Chris. Let's start this morning by calling BS on Ohio Governor Mike DeWine on an issue that should disturb anyone with a driver's license. With news this week that many states have given federal crime investigators unlimited access to all driver's license photos, everyone is trying to find out what Ohio did. DeWine finally said this week that when he was attorney general, he did not give unlimited access, said he provided access on a case-by-case basis. That might sound good, but maybe not. If I'm a federal investigator with facial recognition software, how does case-by-case work? It would seem that I would need all of those Ohio driver's license photos to run my software, which sounds like unlimited access. Jane, DeWine's statement seems to raise a lot more questions than it answers. Yes, it does, and we're seeking to find the answers to those questions. It it does seem like a distinction without a a difference. Giving them access on a case-by-case basis, well, we're giving them access, right? So, um, you know, you, you get the sense that, that DeWine and his folks are sort of puzzled why this is getting all this attention, uh, now because it came up in 2013 when the existence of this database was revealed and they, they had a panel that studied, you know, who should get access and under what circumstances. Um, so now they're just saying, you know, this is for a legitimate, uh, criminal investigations, and there was no dragnet or no surveillance or sweeping, you know. Yeah, but you know, look, Mark, you've used photo software, you've used Lightroom, you've used Photoshop. You don't do that without incorporating the photo into the software. I'm not aware of any software you wouldn't, you would, that would work like this, that you wouldn't have the photos in it. C- correct. And I think Jane has hit on it. They're, they're acting puzzled by why we care now, because they brought this up in 2013, but the world has changed since 2013, particularly on the issue of privacy because of so much going on in social media and the advancement of that facial recognition software and the, and, and that kind of thing like the Adobe suite, the power of the technology has jumped tenfold. And I think the public as a whole is far more sensitive now to that idea. And we're seeing battles with Amazon, which has one of the few tech companies that's still selling some of its facial software to, um, you know, uh, police departments, while others are saying, no, we're not going to give it. So DeWine is showing a bit of his out of touch or his age here in that not Picking up on the climate has changed. But the basic question, Jane, comes down to, does the FBI have all of our driver's license photos or not? And they're, they're not answering that. They're kind of giving us gobbledygook. What about current Attorney General Dave Yost? He seems like he's hiding on the bushes on this one. Right. He is not answering the basic question of, okay, since you took over as Attorney General, uh, have you granted access to this and to whom? Um, he is sort of uh, just making a blanket statement about um, him ordering a review of this, um, although he says he's confident everybody's privacy is protected, but he is going to conduct a review and hear back in 30 days as to whether there was any misuse of, of this database. All right. Well, we're going to continue to ask these questions till they all get answered. We're still a long way from the presidential primary in Ohio, but the games we always seem to see regarding voting might already have begun. We've been in a state in the firm control of Republican leaders for a long time, and we've seen plenty of efforts over the years that you could argue were meant to depress voting by Democrats. This year, though, we're seeing something entirely new, the setting of the primary election day on St. Patrick's Day, which is a pretty busy day in this Democratic stronghold. Jane, how did this happen and why are the Democrats so upset about it? 
Well, uh, the Republicans want to move the primary. It, it, it currently would be scheduled March 10th, and that's before a cutoff where, um, according to the Republican rules, uh, you would have a winner-take-all situation. So they want to get into the winner-take-all situation, so they have to make it, I believe it's like after March 15th. So they made it for the following Tuesday, uh, March 17th, which just so happens to be a huge day for... Uh, Irish people and for Democrats in this county, uh, where there are a lot of Democratic votes, of course. Um, so there's a lot of concern about this disrupting voting. And um, the Republicans have said, hey, uh, we've got 28-day early voting window. Nobody should have a problem voting here. Uh, that's what Secretary Frank LaRose, Secretary of State Frank LaRose said, and the Republicans are saying, yeah, you know, Democrats, you're just whining about this. But the fact is, Election Day is a huge production involving hundreds, thousands of people, and a lot of people wait till that day to vote. Um, maybe like a third vote absentee. Um, or or did maybe in the last presidential election. I think Rich probably has more info on that. But um, it's it's a big day for politicians. Politicians march in the parade. For a lot of people, it's morning till night. They're occupied with this. This isn't, though, a Republican versus Democrat day. That comes in November. This is just Democrats voting for their candidate. So... So the argument that the Republicans are doing this to, to depress Democratic voting... How, that doesn't change the fact that come November, there's going to be a Democrat versus a Republican. How does it hurt the Democrats in the selection of a candidate, even if they depress voting 10%? Or is it more just they're angry because it'll mean fewer people voting? Well, I think it's sort of both. I mean, you want to have a lot of enthusiasm behind your nominee. You want to have a big turnout on a day like that. Rich. I just think this is a case of bipartisan overstatements of things. Uh, it, it, wouldn't it be easier if you were taking your day off to have 10 minutes to go vote versus if you worked all day? And, it depends on when you start drinking. Well, <laughs> and, and so you're talking about a fraction of people. Some people might drink anyway on, on the 16th and the 18th, too, I guess. I mean, and then I see these statements about hundreds of thousands of people downtown. I mean, come on. Nobody's made legitimate uh, estimates that there's that many people, as many people as are. There's lots of people. But you do have the option, if this is a concern, to vote early. A third of the people voted early in the 2016 presidential election, or, or roughly. And, and it's gone up every election as people get more comfortable. So that's like the overstatements on, on the Democratic. Side. Then on the Republican side, I see see the Secretary of State's office and the Republican Party talk, t using this as an issue to say how great the early voting system in Ohio, that we're a leader in Ohio. Well, they don't mention that we're not one of the four states where they automatically send ballots to everybody. We're not one of the several states where you can just request once and automatically get a ballot for every election. They've closed down the number of days that you can vote early, and they limit the county to only having one early voting location. So they're trying to use this as a is an opportunity to talk about our great early voting here when we're, we lag a lot of places. Mark. And there are questions that need to be answered on the production of the primary. Every year, I've covered boards of elections for 20-plus years here. They struggle to get poll workers. Um, those parades are walking poll workers. I mean, those are the Democratic activists and ward leaders and people out there. That's the key. Uh, do they have a plan in place to ensure that someone's not going to choose the parade over what they typically do. Remember, they get paid at 70, 80 bucks a day to go work. I just wonder if that will be, will that, will that have an impact and what is the plan for that? If, if the Secretary of State who campaigned very much as a moderate on the issue of voting rights um, can say we don't see any impact you know, then let's let's prove it. And I get it. But you we should always be erring on the side of how do we continue to make this, you know, the easiest and best process for voting. This seems to be a little bit opposite of that. But I, I think it will come down to the the production of holding the primary. That should be our primary issue. It'll be interesting to see how the Democrats in all of the urban areas, if this remains in place, respond to this to get out the vote. I mean, they, they will respond. There'll be something done you know, through the parade, through the crowds to try and get people to the polls. It's just surprising. That, I mean, this is a holiday in, in Cleveland. I mean, people take off from school. There are throngs down here. It'd be like setting it on Memorial Day. You would never do that. Um, and yet, here they have. 
Rich. Some people suggested that you could drive up voting turnout at all elections, though, if it was on a Saturday or Sunday when more people are off. So I don't know about that. But I think the um, the legitimate question here, which has kind of gotten buried over the enthusiasm for St. Patrick's Day, is what Mark raised, though, is if depending on a number of people to, to run the election, is that going to is that going to be a problem? And that's really what needs to be explored on this and some of this other stuff that's been out there now. Right, right. All those election workers are generally in the parade. Jane. I think some other states have moved to make Election Day its own holiday. So I guess by doing this, they've, they've done that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and have a beer while you're at it. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly they were able to change and justify the date of the primary when they have simply been incapable of doing one of their main jobs, which is setting a budget for the next two years. We've been sitting vigil on this for it seems like forever. Jane, where do we stand on the budget? Well, they're still talking. <laughs> and uh, we had a sense um, maybe a little earlier in the week that we might expect an agreement, um, you know, this week. <laughs> but uh, so far that hasn't materialized. They've called off their sessions, um, although I guess it would be pretty easy to call them back into town. Um, but nothing scheduled yet. When does the temporary budget expire? July 17th. That's Wednesday uh, of next week. and um, They could always extend that again. They can always pass another interim budget. Uh, Senate President Larry Abhoff said that's not something he really wants to do. Uh, House Speaker Larry Householder has been a little more like, well, we could, you know, pass another budget. And they all keep saying, you know, they're close. They they know they're going to do it, but... um, we haven't seen it. All right, we'll see. Ohio is not generally known as a place for tech development, but based on efforts of former Governor John Kasich, the state is making a serious bid to be an innovator with self-driving vehicles. State hit a milestone this week with that effort. Jane, what was it? Um, in East Liberty, they uh, had a ribbon cutting for a smart car vehicle testing center with like a six-lane intersection where they can test the braking technology, you know, for self-driving cars and all that. So very excited about that. Who, who gets to use this? Is it any company that's trying to develop this technology or is it mostly state researchers? Is it, is it available to, um, to various businesses? I saw the, the pictures of the six lane intersection yeah. with the traffic light. <laughs> who, who drives on and that? And they were very careful. They, they, they wanted us to sign a, a you know, a, confidentiality agreement and not take pictures of anything except you know the what video they, looked like it yeah. was in slow motion i'm like boy we're a long <laughs> way from real <laughs> highway driving <laughs> but yes they want to use this to attract companies so they're they i believe they are making it available all right this is a tortured segue but if we ever perfect self-driving <laughs> vehicles driving while under the influence of drugs or alcohol could be a thing of the past meaning people on medical marijuana could use it while in a car and we had some news on medical marijuana this week as Ohio grapples with whether to allow it for people diagnosed with autism. What's the controversy here? Well, um, I don't know if it's a full-blown controversy, but uh, they had a panel of the state medical board study um, adding uh, anxiety and autism spectrum disorder to the list of conditions that you know you could get medical marijuana for and they considered some other ones like opioid use disorder and um, this panel made a positive recommendation about uh, the autism and anxiety and a negative recommendation on the other ones uh, but then when they got down to deciding they decided to delay it um, they got a letter from Nationwide Children's Hospital expressing some real reservations about this. Um, plus, they have some new uh, board members appointed by the governor, and they want to give this a second look. And it looks like this time around they will be considering more of the negative information about this. Okay. Closer to home, we seem to have awakened the county council, which suddenly is doing its job, and it involves a couple of pricey Cuyahoga County contracts that are making news. Courtney, let's talk about the contract that was blocked in the Border Control with Highland Software. What was that contract for, and who blocked it? Yeah, so that was a contract for Highland Software, and Highland Software's name has come up many times throughout the the criminal charges against former IT general counsel Emily McNeely as part of the ongoing county corruption case. So when Highland appeared on the agenda, it was kind of like, whoa, we're about to give more money 
to this company. There's question marks around this whole situation. However, the county is in kind of a weird position because they have this product that was built by Highland that Highland worked on for them over the course, I think, between 2016 and 2018. So it does kind of make sense that they need to go back to the producer to get fixes to their system. Yeah, but what was striking is Council President Dan Brady's representative in the Board of Control, you know, was was basically asking, how much is this for? And the answer was, we don't know, right? I mean, they they did not have a dollar amount that this could equate to? Yeah, one of the IT, IT people kind of responded to that question about the money with, well, this is the equivalent of so many, like, work hours, but that doesn't tell you a dollar amount, and that's something you'd want to know, especially given the sensitivity of the Highland name, given everything that's happened. And it was actually um, Chief Fiscal Officer Dennis Kennedy, who, even when the item first came up and they started to broach the topic, Kennedy's like, just so everyone knows, like, I'm going to hold this item. There's questions that I don't even have answered that I would want answered before we move on this. Well, and one of the other questions that was asked was, you know, did you look at whether anybody else could do this work? And the answer was no. Yeah. So I think that's that's part of the assumption. Highland built it so we'd go back to have them fix it. But again, given everything, like, I think the question was, shouldn't you check out and see if there are alternatives? Another tech contract was controversial, not for who was getting it, but for how big it has grown. What's that one about? Okay. So this is the county's $25 million ERP project. This is a total overhaul of all their old legacy systems. There's like pieces and parts of that left over from the commissioner form of government. So their IT systems need a big update. This has been dragging on for several years now. Uh, the IT department, Budish's administration, um, submitted on Thursday this contract extension with one of the main contractors on this big ERP project. But the thing is, is we've all kind of been waiting for this to go over budget. Everyone's kind of <laughs> thought that it's going to hit that mark and just kind of been waiting to see when it would hit go over budget. It's looking now like we're at that point. What was heartening in your story about this, though, is there was one quote after another by members of county council expressing their reservations about this. They, they didn't say they'd stop it, but they but they were focused on it. They were troubled by it. Um, and, and it was people we often don't hear from. Um, what's going on there? Do you just think that they're more engaged now? Well, I, I will say the ERP is something since I started the beat over a year ago, they've been holding two oversight hearings on the ERP every month for the, at least the past year. I don't know when it started before that. So the ERP is something they felt like they've been actively engaged on and monitoring. They're, they hired their own consultant last year to kind of fact check what was coming out of the administration side. So this has drawn their ire over over this time period that I've been observing it, but it's ramping up because now, I mean, we're getting to the end and we're starting to see what those dollar amounts are going to look like. It's good to see. The county gets some of its revenues from the earnings that casinos and racinos take in. Rich Exner is here to tell us about how much they've been taking in of late. It's a lot, right, Rich? Well, just the racinos, which are the seven uh, slots operations at uh, horse tracks around the state, they just closed their fiscal year, and they took in a billion dollars after paying out winnings. Or let's talk about that a different way. People lost a billion dollars at those seven <laughs> racinos, uh, pulling slot machines in which only the computer determines when they win or lose. But a third of that money, that, that billion dollars, a third of that money at the, the racinos goes to the lottery, in which they hand over a good bit of that. To the, to the state, um, it, it says lottery funds go to education, but in reality, it ends up being all part of the budget. But still, um, it's about three hundred million dollars uh, from just those seven casinos. You add that to the casinos, and uh, which are regulated separately, uh, you're probably talking about one point six, one point seven billion dollars of uh, gambling losses or wins for the uh, operations in Ohio. What, what's always striking when you do these stories is the Northfield Racino. It's one of seven in the state, but it took in a quarter of the money. What is it about that place it's, that makes it so popular? It just seems like the Hard Rock uh, Roxino just knew what they were doing when they set that operation up out there with the, the name. They have they have space out there. People say, oh, the parking's free, but it's probably no different than a lot of the other racinos around Ohio that way. They, they just they just hit this off. Uh, but one thing, even though they do have a fourth, it's going to be interesting to watch. Now, MGM uh, rebranded it after buying the Roxino earlier this year, and it's been a little bit sluggish in terms of historical Northfield Park numbers. Just in June, for instance, they had 10% less uh, revenue than they did the previous June, so 
maybe it's too early to tell. Maybe some of that's changeover, but that'll be interesting to watch. You would have thought the big MGM name comes in and would grow, but we haven't seen that yet in the first few months. Mark? I live uh, near the, the Roxino, but I've not put my money in there, so I just want to establish that. There are two things that have uh, have been consistent that that kind of underpin why it's done better than the others, and, and that has been that combination of having that the, the, the stage and the live acts um, and they've really kind of hit their sweet spot of both the demographic of of the artists who come and the people who play there. They do have uh, great free parking. It's a, and, and we're also off of that that uh, four eighty two seventy one. Um, there's good access there. Um, the Hard Rock name helped a lot, but the the driver has been both a small stage that they have for comedians, and then that. You know, a little slightly larger for those, you know, Tony Orlando musicians right. or, you know, uh, artists who come in that only your parents remember. But uh, <laughs> it, it has helped. That has been a really good combination uh, for helping drive traffic to that. Location. I under, I uh, remember those artists, Mark, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that is a good point because Thistledown, just up the road, um, is probably about as close to the highway as Northfield yeah. Park, and Thistledown doesn't do the numbers. Now, remember when uh, when Dan Gilbert opened up the casino downtown, one of the things where with this temporary casino that's now permanent, I guess, was that we don't want all the restaurant traffic, and we're not building a stage. We're, we want to be part of downtown, so it goes out. Um, that is what's different out there at Northfield is they – do have events to track people into the building um, versus versus the two um, Gilbert properties at Thistledown and uh, downtown. And they're real names. I mean, it, Mark's right. It is kind of the music of your life, but but they're they're they were big names back in the in the day, and there are a lot of people that want to go relive there. And I, I think some of that's going on at some of the other locations around the state, though. But for whatever reason, um, Hard Rock Roxino got that thing off to a good start. All right, next up, we'll be talking about what Greater Cleveland can learn from Indianapolis about efficient government. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The movers and shakers of Ohio start their mornings each weekday by getting up to date on state house news and politics through Cleveland.com's capital letter newsletter. If you want to know what they know as they make the decisions that affect your life, subscribe to capital letter at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. Best of all, it's free. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion and analysis of the news in Northeast Ohio by reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment, Special Projects Coordinator Laura Johnston and reporters Pete Krauss and Emily Bamforth. Pete published a project this week about Indianapolis, which way back around the time Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon, set about combining governments to build what they call Unigov. Pete spent time there talking to leaders about potential lessons for Cleveland. Pete, let's start with a brief description of what Indianapolis did 50 years ago. Well, they uh, merged the city of Indianapolis with the surrounding county of Marion, Marion County. Uh, They went from a population of about uh, 250,000 or 450,000 for Indianapolis. And when they merged with Marion County, they went to about 750,000. This triggered a lot of things that helped them uh, attract more money, revenue for uh, economic development, and it also uh, streamlined their government and helped them make decisions a lot more quicker and easier and led to a lot of good things for the community. Was it hard to accomplish back then? Because you, you could imagine what it would, the challenge would be in some place like here. Did they have an easier road? Uh, well, I suspect they had uh, an easier road. They had a window of opportunity. Uh, Indianapolis at the time had a Republican uh, mayor, a Republican council. Marion County had a Republican council. The state legislature was Republican. The uh, creation of Unigov required an act of the legislature. So basically you had people of like minds uh, coming together to make this happen. It's, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, in the mid-60s when the Democrats were in and power. They tried to do the same thing, and the Republicans uh, fought against it, including the uh, conservative-leaning Indianapolis Star, and uh, and it didn't happen. But once the Republicans got control, they made it happen, and uh, and the rest is history. 
So, Pete, uh, well, I've seen some criticism, though, of that idea that maybe it it overstrengthened the Republican Party as a result, or that it left some blind spots and in, inequities in place. What, what did you see on on those points? Oh, the, the critics it, have brought that up quite a bit. Well, and the critics are right. I mean, it, it took the Democrats out of the picture for three decades. The uh, um, this, this was 1968 when they first started talking about. Uh, Unigov. Uh, 1968 was the year that the first uh, two uh, black mayors of major cities were elected. Uh, Carl Stokes here in Cleveland, uh, uh, Hatcher in um, in Indiana, and the African American community in Indianapolis was hoping for something similar. Well, you take the Democratic Party out of the picture, and that's not going to happen. And uh, and so uh, that's that is a failing uh, of Unigov or or a drawback plus. Um, all the constituents that you would associate with the Democratic Party perhaps didn't get as much as they might have if you'd had uh, the Democrats in power. Um, has there been efforts since to kind of work with the unified government to address any racial inequities or, or things like that? Um, there, there are now things going on. I've talked to people there. They, they recognize that some people have been left behind uh, uh, and that they, they're trying to do things to improve neighborhoods. But but th- this is an important point. What Indianapolis has experienced is no different really than what Cleveland and Detroit and others have experienced as it relates to uh, African Americans being left out of the equation. The same kind of redlining that has occurred in cities all over the country occurred in Indianapolis. And when I talk to people, they say, you know, that would have happened you know, with Unigov or without Unigov. So I'm not so sure you can blame Unigov for some of the inequities that are incurring uh, in, uh, in Indianapolis. I think you can just blame uh, society. But it's not. Oh, God, Laura. I, I was just going to say that um, Pete kicked off a series by saying, you know, in the 60s, they called uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, no place. And I did a story like seven years ago when we were working on our convention center here because Indianapolis has a really thriving convention scene. And they told me that in the 60s they could go – you could go um, like shoot birds on the street with a gun in the middle of a Sunday afternoon because there was nothing going on there. And now um, they've had a Super Bowl and I think you know the whole point of Pete's piece um, and series was to see how it could revitalize – the government could revitalize the economy – and um, do they still ha- even have like a mall downtown Indianapolis, Pete? Well, well, yeah. But one of the things that happened in the 1990s is they brought a mall downtown. It's a part of it is actually kind of hangs over uh, uh, one of the main intersections of downtown. It kind of looks like a spaceship came right down and it, it connects uh, 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 stores with hotels and and various places. Um, it, it's a very vibrant downtown. And, and when you look at what Unigov accomplished, Really, the economic development, the the the, the uh, progress downtown, um, are, is kind of like the main thing people point to. And and if you look at the numbers, and you compare peer cities, you compare Indianapolis with Cleveland, Detroit, a lot of other cities just like it, uh, the numbers show that Indianapolis fared a lot better in the seventies, eighties, and nineties when it came to job growth, uh, 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 not as much loss of manufacturing jobs. So something was going on in Indianapolis. Uh, after Unigov, that was working. Mark? No, I was going to just jump on that that point that Pete made about the inequities still exist here without it. And I would think if, uh, and as part of your series is pushing this idea of, you know, what could we learn from it? I mean, what would we do different uh, to maybe improve on on what they've learned? Well, it, it, it is not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. It clearly is not. For one thing, when they merged with Marion County, Marion County was, was a growing county. They, so they took a, a, a decaying, declining Indianapolis and merged it with a growing metro uh, suburban area. Our suburban area, Cuyahoga County, is already, is already developed, okay? And a lot of it is stagnant and suffering. So uh, you can't really make an apples-to-apples comparison. But, but one other quick point uh, to the inequities. Uh, schools were not part of the merger. And that is, uh, and that's a big reason why I think you probably ha- still have some of the issues there uh, that um, people are concerned about. Pete is doing this project because there's a bunch of discussions going on in Cleveland now about what it wants to be by 2030, with regards to economic vitality and making sure 
uh, forgotten populations get opportunities. The project is part of Cleveland Connects, which is sponsored by PNC Bank and seeks to provoke civil dialogue about serious greater Cleveland issues. As Pete notes in his stories, Greater Cleveland is fractured into many dozens of municipalities all operating independently. Some thrive, some not so much. One of the success stories over the last 10 to 15 years is Lakewood, where millennials have moved in by the thousands and where people take great pride in their lakefront city. Next week, Cleveland.com will launch an experiment in news coverage of Lakewood to see if doing something that is not traditional might offer hope for providing residents of the suburbs with news of their communities. We are calling it Lakewood Together, and reporter Emily Bamforth will be the one conducting it. Emily, how is Lakewood Together different from traditional coverage? Sure. And uh, in our initial discussions about this project, people are really excited about this. But we're using the Project Text platform in order to approach hyperlocal news in a, in a slightly different way. People will be able to get the news that they really care about delivered directly to their phones. And so you look at the success of community Facebook pages and Nextdoor and online discussion um, and we were really looking at how a local news organization can step in, capture this kind of discussion, but make the calls that these people don't have time to make. And one of the things we were thinking about, I mean, a lot of media organizations have tried to do what we call hyper-local coverage with traditional ways, stories and an advertising model, and, and everybody has failed. Um, and, and looking at social media, like you mentioned, the Facebook pages mm-hmm. or nextdoor.com, Part of the issue with that is is there are nuggets there that are interesting, mm-hmm. but my God, you've got to go through so many missing cats notices or people looking for plumbers that it's pretty tedious to get at it. What, what might work for this is this is stuff you care about directly delivered to your phone in the warm tone of... Emily Bamford. <laughs> uh, we're really excited about it. And I live in this community. I've lived in this community for four plus years. Um, I'm one of the millennial renters that has come in. And it, the people that I know that live in Lakewood around my age, they're just as or, or sometimes even more engaged than people who have lived there um, for a little while and own homes and that kind of thing. So I think that's what's really unique about Lakewood is that you not only have people who bought their first homes there and have been there forever being engaged, but they the entire community wants to know what's going on. Laura? I just wanted to point out why we picked Lakewood, and it is this very vibrant, thriving community with its own downtown. And it's obviously, it's close to Cleveland, but it has um, a huge array of people, and they all care very deeply about issues, whether it's Lakewood Hospital or pit bulls mm-hmm. or the schools. And we've gotten them this really warm reception with everybody we've met in Lakewood that are really excited about the the emphasis that we're going to put on their city. Yeah, it was fascinating because we all went over this week to meet with the mayor and, and other leaders in City Hall. And there was an excitement because they missed the days when a reporter paid attention to Lakewood. It helps build pride in the community. They were like, here, here's a room, stay here, (laughs) hang out here, ask us questions. They were just, they were great. What's really exciting though is that outside of City Hall and outside of government, um, the Project Text platforms gives us the opportunity to hear directly from the people who want to know things. So you can ask me questions directly, I can respond to you, um, and, and we can build a community on top of everything else. And they can help direct our coverage. So they can say, we want to know more about business openings and closings, or we want to know more about real estate. And we will, you know, pay attention to that and give them what they're they're looking for. It's the pronoun issue, right? We're no longer, it's no longer us and them. We're, We're working with the collective we. And it's a very different kind of approach. I mean, there's nothing traditional about what we're trying to do here. We should say, Lakewood Together will have a free trial, but ultimately people who want it will have to pay us $3.99 a month. But the goal, and the goal has been for years, to come up with a way to have sustainable journalism of of local communities, something that that there is no future for right now. So it's only the entire future of our our industry (laughs) that's riding on Emily's head today. No pressure, but... Don't mess up. (laughs) Definitely look out for it and uh, get that free trial. And Emily will be around this weekend um, at Lakewood Meltdown if you're in Lakewood. Mm -hmm. Look for the Cleveland.com tent. All right. You might have heard we had a special baseball game in Cleveland this week, the MLB All-Star Game. Major League Baseball has evolved this from one or two nights of activities to fully 
five days of hoopla. And Laura Johnston here is to talk about that hoopla. Laura, what was all the hoopla? <laughs> it was really fun. Um, there was stuff all over, uh, all over downtown Cleveland, a lot at Playball Park, which is, um, they turned malls B and C on top into kind of a candy land for baseball fans. Um, and beneath, um, had everything from a human claw in a, you know, like, you were lowered down into a pit where you could pick up a hat uh, to make your own baseball cards um, that you posed for. There were batting cages, pitching cages, um, mascots everywhere. They did family feud on the stage. They were giving out free stuff everywhere from hot dogs to, you know, uh, baseballs. And so uh, thousands of people came down from Friday through Tuesday, actually Wednesday, the Playball Park was still open and to, to feel like they're part of this game. What's amazing is once again, Cleveland got all this national attention. USA Today did another glowing piece they about Cleveland gushing, take yeah. a bow, you know, which, which was really at risk this year because we've never had as many rainy days as we had this year. And leading into this, you thought, man, if it just rains for four days, we're in trouble. And then the weather was just spectacular. Dave Gilbert is living a charmed Especially life over at the Especially for the Bureau. actual games. Like Sunday, Monday, mm-hmm. Tuesday were just perfect. And, and so everything went off a hit, without a hitch. There was a red carpet parade where pickup trucks full of baseball players and their families literally drove down a carpet on East 9th Street. Well, as I pointed out on Twitter, the uh, potholes never look so good. Yeah. Right? The, <laughs> yeah. the shots the of the red carpet more. before it's the parade started was, was kind of a cool scene to look at, you know, down the canyon of buildings with just red carpet. I uh, like the comment that we could just leave this up till October, right? Because yeah. we're... They're going to be back. But, Mark, you thought the parade was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, the parade itself felt really low on energy. I know that it's part of the staging. It was like all of these events. They're heavily staged by the respective, you know, groups. In this case, Major League Baseball. Uh, The spacing between the cars was too slow, in part, to let traffic cross. But, you know, and just seeing largely a group of people in the back of a pickup truck that you didn't know other than, yeah. you know, the main ball player and in and, and, and the energy, I, I think getting people out on foot would have been a little more. There just needed to be something more. The mascots, you know, were working their uh, their tails off, literally. <laughs> literally. Uh, in, in trying to kind of rev up the crowd. I saw a number of times that MLB's camera crews would try to get the crowd to, you know, they'd give them a sign to kind of really cheer up when one of the cars would come by. It, it felt a, a little slow, but you know what? If you were a baseball fan, I don't want to take anything from you. You, you loved it because you knew who, who the people were. Um, it was good to see, despite all of the Disneyland-esque aspects of this, that we had, uh, and this is really what the, uh, USA Today was giving a shout-out to, a really good game involving great pitching, you know, by Cleveland's Brad Hand. Um and it was and Bieber yeah and, I'm sorry Bieber yes uh, Shane. Um, Shane Shane Bieber and to, yes. uh, to be clear um, yeah. so I thought you know overall but I, I think the the big takeaway is someone who's covered this for for many years these events what Cleveland has benefited from now is we know how to do these they know the logistics they know their space they work with these groups coming in you saw it in the RNC you saw it in this we're going to see it in the draft NFL draft and the, NL, and the NBA All-Star and, NBA All Star. And even NBA parade, like they know how to do it. That is the benefit of that momentum. The economic impact, right, is really it's just a shot. It doesn't have a lasting effect. We know that, but boy, do we know how to do it now. And I think well, that's that's a benefit to all you know the city and the players in this. Although we did have a hiccup, MLB did kind of make a mistake in putting together oh. the programs. Right, there was a problem so, at the airport. Right, and they were just they were expecting this um, that they make these programs like the souvenir programs for the games out of these thick shiny paper, and it can ha- cause problems when it goes through the um, the detectors at the airport. So they were telling everybody, leave it out, put it in a separate container, so that we do not have to search through all of your your bags to, uh, and cause big delays. But you know, we had Hannah Drown at the airport yesterday interviewing people about what they thought about Cleveland, and it didn't look like it was too crazy at the airport. So they they seem to have, I mean, at least when we were there. Um, managed it. All right, Cleveland summer of fun didn't end with the game Tuesday. For the next week or so, Cleveland is hosting the Tall Ships, something we have not seen in six years. Laura, why is this so special? It's just really cool. It's it's really uh, amazing to see these vestiges of our maritime past, like out there on our lake, um, with their masts full. We have eleven ships coming. Um, 
from the United States and Canada mostly, one from New Zealand, um, and they are here from today. They come in, or Thursday, they come in, and they're here through Sunday. And uh, you can tour them. The parade of or the parade of sale on Thursday, they actually go in front of downtown Cleveland, so you can see all of them in their glory together. Is it just through this Sunday? Just through this Sunday. Okay. And then on Monday, they actually race out of town. They only have three races on the Great Lakes this whole summer, and one of them starts in Cleveland off of Edgewater. So that'll be really exciting. But it's a big deal. They've sold out all of their sail-away tickets. There's three ships that will be taking people. But you can still get tickets to come down, uh, climb aboard, see what life was like um, uh, on a ship you know, 200 years ago. All right. Coming up next, one of our sports editors, Jamie Turner, takes us to the moon. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at Cleveland.com slash Project Text. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn, and in this segment, I'm talking to one of our sports editors, Jamie Turner, but we're not talking about sports. We're talking space, specifically the 50th anniversary of the moonwalk. Jamie has put together a big package of stories examining Ohio's role, and he has written a lot of things that you might not know. Jamie, how about a brief rundown of the pieces you'll publish starting Tuesday? Sure. We, it'll be a four-day series, and the first part will be on Neil Armstrong, who was this enigmatic uh, person, a brilliant engineer, who only wanted to be able to design planes and then ended up flying them very well and then eventually got into NASA. Uh, he was... Uh, part of a crew that Mike Collins, the command module pilot, called Amiable Strangers, and that uh, Collins continued to say, well, there's no man is really an island, but Neil is an island. And sometimes he's not all that interested in having other people come to his island. <laughs> and uh, But he he earned the opportunity to be the commander and the first man on the moon uh, because probably – to the exclusion of every other astronaut, he had a career in which his problem-solving avoided disasters, whether he was flying in the Air Force uh, or flying Gemini 8, where it was the first mission that was in mortal danger because of a faulty uh, thruster that could have killed uh, Armstrong and Dave Scott or at least left them unconscious to circle the earth until the capsule ran out of oxygen and then fell back into the earth and, and was incinerated. But he figured out how to fig- fix it. And the brass at NASA had kind of picked him out as, if we got to have a Lindbergh, if we got to have somebody who's going to represent all of mankind, let alone all of America, it's got to be Neil Armstrong. And so that's part one. Part two is... Well, let me interrupt okay, you. What was fascinating in that story is, and I didn't know this even though I've been here a long time, he spent part of his childhood in, in Greater Cleveland, right? His father was a, an, an accountant and worked for the state in resolving uh, the, the uh, budgets of counties within the state. And so from the time uh, Armstrong was born until he was 14, he lived 16 different places in the state. And much of it was in Northeast Ohio, um, Shaker Heights, Warren, um, went as far west as Sandusky, uh, was in Cleveland Heights, uh, just bounced around from place to place and would only live there for the six weeks or so that it would take for uh, uh, his father to, to do his work. But what he was exposed to, it was the Cleveland Air Show at, his, at the age of two in 19... 19- 32, uh, that uh, gave him his first exposure to airplanes. And apparently, according to his family, he just brightened and was fascinated. And it was in Warren where he had his first flight at age six. And as a a, a tri-motor plane was giving uh, uh, local residents an opportunity to to be what it feel what it's like to be in the air. 
you know, because this was now 1938 and that still was a novelty. So yeah, he he has he has ties to to Northeast Ohio. He obviously is the well. If if you think this is the greatest achievement in mankind, then you pretty much have to say he's the most important person in Ohio history. Uh, and so that that's how it starts. Right, you and I talked earlier this week about how the computer on the lander kept rebooting as it neared its de- destination. It's one of the things you list is little known facts. What are some of the others in that piece? What are some of the interesting facts that you don't think people are aware of? Well, uh, one of the reasons we went to the moon had nothing to do with John Kennedy being interested in going to the moon. He really wasn't. But he had just gone through the Bay of Pigs. And he, uh, Yuri Gagarin had just been launched into space within 90 days of Kennedy beginning his uh, uh, presidency. And he realized that he didn't want to be painted with the same brush that he painted Dwight Eisenhower with, which was, you're way behind Russia. You can't compete with Russia. You know, we're losing every race possible with the communists. And so he asked Lyndon Johnson in a memo, what do we have to do? What could we do that would be more impressive worldwide than what the Russians are currently doing? And he threw out some different ideas, but one of them was, can we get to the moon and get somebody back from it? Bring a few rocks, something like that. And Johnson went to Werner von Braun, who was the designer uh, of, of rocketry for NASA. And von Braun said, <laughs> in a, in, in, without giving a whole lot of thought, he, I'm sure you know German was his native language, not necessarily English. Well, you know, if we make a crash course, uh, we can probably pull this off within the decade. And that's really by in May after Alan Shepard's suborbital, Kennedy makes that announcement that we will do this within the decade. And it was really, it was political. It was totally political based on the presidency had already been uh, embarrassed by two events and Kennedy didn't want to be embarrassed anymore. But we did it. But they did it. And that, and that was the, the, the stunning thing of what America accomplished. If you consider that Yuri Gagarin was the first man who flew one orbit in 1961 and we landed on the moon eight years later, almost well, eight years and two months later. That's the rough equivalent of the Wright brothers taking their first flight in 1903 and having transcontinental flights available for passengers eight years later. Right. It was an incredible accomplishment and, and something that people today – particularly the almost 80% of America who are not old enough to have a real memory of this probably don't know. And, and, you know, we just, and we don't think of those type of accomplishments anymore. But you and I both grew up in that era. And what I remember of, of that period was a real celebration of science and intelligence and scholarship. Um, Anybody that was alive then, even if you were young, I was a young kid, but all the adults in my orbit were agog that we were walking on the moon and in schools and everywhere else. Every, that's what it was celebrated is being smart enough to do that. And you don't get the same kind of feeling today. It's almost the opposite. Well, we're, we're in an era in which science is doubted, uh, where people, you know, if, they, if it serves their political purposes, just say, well, there are a few people who say no, therefore the science is unproven. Well, science is always unproven. That's the point of science. It's to test and verify and move on to the next question and see if you can prove your theory wrong. Not necessarily just to prove it right. It's got to be other scientists are always going to be testing your theory to say, no, you didn't get it quite all right. And, but inevitably, how science advances is that, well, we do finally get it right. All right. You open the door on the people who don't believe it, so let's go there. There is and has continued to be for 50 years the whole mythology that the whole moon landing was set up on a movie soundstage, which, which is silly, but it, th- this is one of those conspiracy theories that actually seems to grow with each passing year, um, and, and it's preposterous as much as the flat earth is. Talk a little bit about that. 
Well, Neil Armstrong was, as well as Aldrin and, and Collins, uh, Buzz Aldrin famously slugged a guy right. uh, before he was get, going to give a speech, I think in Houston, but I, I forget exactly where, in the last 15 years, where you know Buzz was 70 years old and he flattened this guy with a left hook. You can see it on YouTube. I, I, <laughs> I recommend it. It's pretty funny. Uh, but So all the astronauts were sensitive to this. But Neil Armstrong, uh, in his last public appearance uh, before he passed in uh, 2012, was uh, giving a presentation to a collection of Australian CPAs uh, in late 2011. And because his father, as we've talked about, was an accountant, he had a soft spot in his heart for that profession. And I'm sure he was being paid well. But at the time, one of the new technologies of, tw- of the first 10 years of uh, the 21st century was Google Earth. And then they came up with Google Moon because there had been so many flights back and forth and so many satellites that had gone around by all, all various nations, and obviously Russia as well, that they could map the moon to a high degree of accuracy. Well, Armstrong, sensitive to the idea that, well, we really didn't land on the moon, decided to match a, uh, a demonstration of the projected landing path on Google Moon to the actual film shot out the window of the lunar module of them actually coming in for a landing. Obviously, if Stanley Kubrick, who did 2001, had actually faked the whole thing, he wouldn't have known where to put the craters. He would just have randomly put craters out there. But Armstrong was able to prove by matching up the two scenarios that every time Google Moon showed a crater, right in the video was that crater in exactly the same place at exactly the same time in the landing as, as uh, was described in 1969. Uh, Armstrong famously had to take over control of the landing and take the, the lunar module maybe a half mile farther down the track in order to land safely because the computer was going to drop him right into a crater. Well, you can see on Google Moon, as the film shows, there's the crater. It's called West Crater, as I recall. And, yep, they're heading right into it. And yet Armstrong you know, takes over and, and accomplishes the landing. So, yeah, the, the idea of fakery, Armstrong also said, I, I know it's not fake because someday somebody's going to go back and want to look at where we landed and they'll find a camera I left behind and I'd like to have it back. <laughs> All, right. All right, let's wrap this up with this. You're a sports editor and yet you've invested a significant amount of time in putting together the content that will start next week. You're starting it on the 50th anniversary of the launch and it'll continue through the week. Why? Why the interest? Why the passion? Uh, it is much like you were saying, I was 12 years old when, when we landed, I, even better, I was six, seven and eight when Gemini was launching every two months. And it was, it was the most interesting thing that you could be paying attention to as a kid. And it didn't hurt that, uh, I was also a big comic books fan and uh, DC comics, Superman, Batman comics, uh, had a promotion in the back that said, if you take our seal of approval and send it in to this address, we will send you a life-size mock-up of a Gemini spacecraft. Wow. And there were, you know, I, I was imagining I would have it in my backyard, and every time they had a flight, I would climb in with a bunch of sandwiches <laughs> and stay there for as long as, as the flight would take on, would go on not realizing certain other bodily needs that might have to be accomplished and the mock-up would not be able to, to handle. Uh, and as it turns out, and so that, that's what happens when you're a kid. As it turns out much later, several years, uh, actually just a few years ago, because there are a few other people at cleveland.com who have the same interest, we looked it up and that actually happened. Somebody, they actually delivered on a freight car and on a train the mock-up, I think it was in Missouri, and this kid gets a chance to climb into it and then immediately donates it to the local museum because parents had no interest in having it around. But that was how big this was. Wow. You know, it, it was so enormous. Uh, it dominated your attention. When I was in school, I'd be drawing 
the the Saturn V rocket just because I wanted to see if I could mimic it. Uh, it's it's one of those whatever is important to you in life you're going to remember in in tremendous detail. Space is that for me. It's an astounding achievement. Look for Jamie's content next week on Cleveland.com and then later in the Plain Dealer. Uh, thanks for taking the time, Jamie. Coming up, a conversation with Mark Namick as he wraps up 19 years at the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. We're back with a bit of a melancholy segment for me on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, who will be leaving my newsroom for the final time this week. Mark arrived in the newsroom 19 years ago as a pretty green reporter and leaves as the newsroom veteran. He'll be joining WKYC in a couple weeks. Part of his evolution, Mark has always been somebody that has embraced change. He's been a news reporter, a politics writer, and for the last eight years, a Metro columnist. And even though he was the dean of the news reporting staff, he was one of the most innovative people here. In recent years, he embraced photography and videography as storytelling tools. He innovated on a whole bunch of formats. At the heart of his work has been storytelling. So, Mark, let's talk about some of the highlights. For me, your work on former Beechwood Mayor Merrill Gordon and Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnston were high watermarks. How did you get interested in things like that? I'm always as only as good as the tips I get. And when people reached out as readers of The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com to say, hey, you need to take a look at the mayor of Beechwood, he goes to lunch a lot. Like, it seems... <laughs> like such a simple or small thing but as we pulled the string on that you realized he was putting in so we we asked for his expense reports and he was going to lunch but not only to lunch but to breakfast and sometimes dinner all in the same day and and that really is a you know is a flag so we went in and you wanted to look at it and it's you know Beachwood's well run it's prosperous and, and to me, that was all the more reason that you need to hold people like that accountable as well. He was, you know, you're still cheating taxpayers when you get so sloppy and comfortable in your job that you're putting in for a dollar seventy nine bagel when you already made two hundred thousand dollars on the public dime. And those stories just lit up, and we were able to get the, you know, the, it was the detail that made those stories so much fun. Where he would go to a raffle you know, uh, a, a largely a men's raffle, you know, at, at some event that cost $200 at Beachwood paid for. And then he would enter, you know, one of the raffles while he was there and would win the money and take the money. And then when we wrote about it, he would return the money or ask about it. He, he returned it. So, you know, those details made the stories fun. And that's why people really followed it. And we, I got a couple of years worth of columns out of it. And I think in the end, it was at least worth 38 votes because that's what he, you know, lost this the second time he ran after the story started. And I think uh, people said, you know what, we're moving on. With Ken Johnson, you started hearing about his abuse of the expense reports while you were working on our signature project, The Greater Cleveland, which you were uh, uh, played a, a huge role in. Um, and when that finally, the, the demands of that project started to reduce, You'd said, "Hey, I want to start looking at this," and that became one hell of a roller coaster ride. Yeah, same thing. The details really became powerful elements of a story, and people wanted more, and people reached out with more. Um, the The short of it was, it turned out Ken Johnson was one of the only council members who submitted receipts every month for the maximum allowed by council, which is twelve hundred dollars a month, and it was. Every month he came to the penny, and that's also a red flag. A red Should flag. have been a red flag for county, I mean for city council, and we 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 place some of that that responsibility on them. Um, and as we wrote about or highlighted one expense, and council closed that door, Ken would look for ways to come up with new expenses, and then we'd write about those and we would close. And I'm using the obvious examples of he would put in for gas for lawnmowers in the summer when it's winter, you can't claim you're doing it. So it would shift and go somewhere else in mileage and driving. And he was paying an individual 
who turned out that he had some relationship with to do ward you know activities that were undefined and uh, that story continues it will continue on um, you know uh, probably for several more months until some investigation kind of closes it council is currently uh, auditing those numbers with an outside firm and um, cleveland.com has reported based on sources who have been contacted by fbi about ken johnson that the FBI is looking. We don't know where that leads, but we we know that they have been asking questions. Now we'll have to compete with you on this story. Those are my <laughs> highlights. What 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 are yours? What are you going to remember? Uh, look, um, first, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to talk about that career. Um, this is just a chapter, and I'm moving on. But I remember starting in the Lorraine Bureau back when the Plain Dealer had bureaus in many of the the surrounding counties. Uh, you know, and back then it was usually writing about a farmer who was complaining that it was either too rainy or too dry. Um, but it was, you know, you, Chris, that, uh, you know, helped tap me to come in and help cover city politics when you moved off the beat. And it was really the moment that Mike White surprised everyone in uh, early 2001 that uh, he would not seek reelection. That year, and he made an announcement at a school in his neighborhood. And for some odd reason, Mike White did not want me there. Um, and I got removed, asked to leave, escorted out, and that essentially, you know, sort of stole some of the spotlight from his decision. Um, uh, it even got mentioned in the New York Times that a reporter got thrown out, and that it's hard to forget that. And that really helped on the politics. Covering city politics put me in touch with city neighborhoods at a level I had never, you know, had before. And I think that was really important to uh, informing everything else I had, I would do from that point on. Uh, As politics, as I stayed on that beat, I think covering state politics was great. I've been to places like Wapakoneta in, you know, in Ohio, in Ironton, which is as far south as you can go. Um, It's hard to, to, to underplay how important it is to see the rest of our state um, you know, covering George Bush's reelection against John Kerry riding on a bus with Bush past places in Greene County that didn't have a Bush sign, but had a sign that just said, vote the Bible. You know, it really tells you something. And I think that's, you know, how lucky I've been to be at a place like the Plain Dealer in Cleveland.com. And then obviously, you know, being part of any coverage uh, and agnostic towards the candidate, but the story of Obama, first black president, uh, covering that, they, he gave a lot of attention to Ohio, and he targeted places outside of the urban areas. So to see him standing in a, you know, a field in the fall, you know, at night in southern Ohio in the foothills of Appalachia, just the backdrop and the scene will always stay with you. Um, bringing it closer to home, the stories that definitely stood out without a doubt, was the reaction to the uh, Brelo trial, and that was the police officer who was, you know, they tried to, to, to charge with uh, getting on top of a car and firing bullets into that car that ended, at, you know, uh, after a police chase. You know, that's the closest I've ever seen the city get to, to having some real rioting and trouble, and um, I, we, we know the story now, right? It was The city did keep a cap on it, but that was intense, and I think as any reporter would say, that was a big deal. And then obviously, some of these big events that we talked about you know, before in the podcast, um, the, the downtown RNC. events, the RNC certainly was a big deal. You were, you were fantastic on that because you, you were working as a camera person, basically. You were out there with your phone in the thick of it, providing footage. I don't think anybody else Well, got. and I, I enjoy doing it and the ability to just talk about our streets and our city and, and, and the police officers and explaining the dynamic of what was happening with the bike patrol and how they were kind of using those as corrals to move people because they had learned from earlier protests that that's a problem um and then finally chris the the ability to tell stories about uh characters and i've uh, the ones that stick out uh, on this may be surprising to some and they may not remember the story but i got a call from a guy on the near west side who was being harassed by his neighbors being accused of of being the one who uh, had kidnapped, you know, the the girls that we would later discover in Ariel Castro's home, 
And I went out to meet with him, and he was, you know, a convicted child molester who had moved back home. And uh, people kept calling the cops on him, and you know, he said, "I didn't do it. I didn't do it." And it was proven right. That was in a, it was a difficult story to write and a position to take, you know. Uh, but then, you know, writing a story about a homeless guy paying taxes on a house he didn't own will always stick with me. Um, you know, there was a crazy story in Bay Village about a, you know, uh, a neighborhood battle over a, an adult male who was living with his parents who put cameras up all over his house into other people's pointing yeah, at other people. That's a great one. <laughs> uh, those are the, the, the things you are blessed to do as, as a reporter and cover and, uh, you know, bringing it up to date, all of the changes, uh, the things that we've tried. I've really enjoyed doing Project Text because I love those little tidbits. And as, as Emily talked about with Lakewood coming up, I did respond to the people who, who right. uh, asked a question or a follow-up or they added something to it. And, and that's really the evolution of our journalism. And I've been able to start with a pen and end with a project text. And that's a pretty cool thing. You know, I said in a, in a note to the staff this week that when I came here in 1996, I pretty quickly realized you were the columnist I wanted to work with, even though I wouldn't meet you for four more years. And what I what I meant by that is that somebody that didn't just sit back and react to news and, and pontificate, but somebody that went out and talked to people and worked hard and told the stories and developed the sources. Um, and it took a long time to get there. It took 15 years of, of being in Cleveland before we were able to make that happen. And then you did everything I could have hoped for. Uh, I think you've raised the bar on what a Cleveland columnist can do so that anybody who follows after you uh, has has some pretty big shoes to fill. So I'm grateful, and I, I wish you the best. We'll be competitors now. I, I appreciate it, and uh, Chris, give yourself a, a credit for that, and I think it, the next columnist will be able to succeed because you're here. You're the one uh, that helped guide me, uh, helped me sometimes sharpen that walk-off. <laughs> um, and I think that makes a difference, having editors that are equally involved in the community and um, I look forward to reading and following and, of course, trying to compete with uh, what is a great news organization, Cleveland.com. And, and look, the good news is Mark isn't leaving Cleveland. He'll still be in Cleveland. You just have to look for his reports on WKYC, which really is the, uh, the best of the uh, television news stations in town. That's it for this week in the CLE. Thanks to Mark Namick and thanks to Jane Cahoon, Rich Exner, Emily Bamforth, Courtney Ostafi, Pete Krause, Laura Johnston, and Jamie Turner for the discussion. This week in the CLE is normally published Thursday nights. Hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode and let us know how we were doing by sending an email to special at cleveland.com. <laughs>